This morning, I have a few books to recommend. We're going to be talking together today uh, in our teaching series. We're going through, let's, let's back up. We're going through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And this week, we're in chapter 6, which engages with the subject of sex and sexuality. Uh, we're going to be considering sex in the city, the city of Corinth and our city. Um, if you're interested and you'd like to read more around this subject generally, since, as we'll mention, there's been a lot of social change in the last few decades, these three books I'd really want to recommend. Uh, a Better Story by Glyn Harrison. He's a Christian psychiatrist and um, writes superbly about this. Um, Nancy Piercy. She, this is a book called Love Thy Body, about much of the underlying thinking at work in society and how it's influencing us. And then particularly if you're not a believer, you're exploring Christianity, this, you'd really like this book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Um, I'll put them here. You can have a look at them at your leisure, but uh, I would recommend them. That was a beautiful contribution by John. And actually just very... Um, I, don't, I don't mean this in a wrong term, but very therapeutically, very helpful and inspiring. Um, but as, we, as he was saying, I was thinking, this is true for those of us who are in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus and be baptized in his name, you can hear the Lord speak words of encouragement and strength to you. But if you're not a Christian, it's a different situation, actually. We have a, God is holy, and we as human beings by nature and choice are sinful and unless we deal with our sin we are under the anger of God for sin and I mention that because Christianity is incredibly subversive it undermines therapeutic human wisdom to put it that way by reminding us there is a holy God in heaven and he has made provision for our sin but if you won't choose that provision you'll have to find your own provision outside of that gospel. And again, I mention that because as we come to 1 Corinthians 6, we are talking about something that is largely out of step with our culture, and it is inheriting uh, an inheritance of the subversive nature of Christianity that is essentially about the kingdom of God, that there is a king, and you are not it. Jesus is the king, and we're to bow to him. Now the church, the Christians in Corinth were Christians, but they were also in a muddle, and a muddle is to put it lightly. They were suing one another. As we learned last week, one member of the church was having sex with his stepmother, and as we'll read this week, other members of the church are visiting prostitutes. So they're Christians, but they're caught in a lot of confusion about what their society taught them about the body and about sex. And we're going to be looking at that together today under the topic of the real sexual revolution. That's what I'm wanting to talk about, the real sexual revolution. And we're going to consider the writings of a single celibate man and also some writings of some more recent Western thinkers to show how there's a clash of civilizations, a clash of uh, opinions when it comes to thinking about sex and the body that it's important for us to be aware of and engage with. So we're going to read the entirety, entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It should appear on the screen behind me. Let's go. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that brother before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and sisters. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is God's word. A while ago, someone asked me, uh, they said, is it true that Christianity teaches that gay sex is a sin? You may remember that a similar question was put to Tim Farron when he was running for office several years ago at a general election. Is it true that gay sex is a sin? I wonder how you would answer that. Maybe you'd do a better job than Tim Farron famously didn't do. For me, at least, I think part of the answer is to say it's a lot worse than that, actually. <laughs> because in the Bible, God teaches us that all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. But in being a lot worse than that, it's actually a lot better than you think. And it's that better that we're going to be talking about together today. The first thing to say is that we are living in a sex-obsessed society. I almost don't need to say that, but it needs to be said. And as a result, we're all coming at these questions, this issue, this conversation, not neutral, um, but informed widely by our culture and by the way that it has trained us and taught us to think through its slogans and phrases and through your own body, through your instincts and urges and what you would like to do with it or not, as the case may be. Some of us in the room have been hurt by and damaged by the church when it comes to teachings of sex and sexuality. Many of us live with regrets when it comes to sex and sexuality. Some of us are quite judgmental in a, and hold a conservative position and need to be pushed in the opposite direction to that. 
And yet still many of us besides are feeling no doubt very confused about what we should think, what we do think and what we should think on this, living as we do in such an aggressively progressive secular culture. And it's also worth saying that if you're not a Christian, actually we looked at this last week, Paul's writings here are written to Christians. And actually in the previous chapter he quite explicitly says, I have no business judging anyone who's not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, and you hold, then you hold to a fundamentally different way of seeing the world to me. So I'm not expecting you to agree with me, if that's the case. I'm not expecting people in this town to agree with me or us or what the Bible says in this, in this regard. And again, that's okay. It's not our business to judge the world. We have a different way of seeing things and a different worldview. Jesus, for us, has been raised from the dead, and that transforms and changes the way we see things. Now, the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s has transformed the way that we think about so many things. It's transformed the way we think about our bodies, about marriage, about singleness, about celibacy, about sexuality, and about love. It's also transformed the way we think about sex in saying to us, essentially, that man cannot live without sex. Man cannot live without sex. And so therefore, for many people in our society, they believe that to deny a person sexual expression, to put any level of restrictions on a person's sexuality, is to deny their personhood, to rob them of dignity. So it makes for a very difficult conversation if that's an underlying assumption for people. Nevertheless, the Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is not just true, but life-giving as well. And so those of us who are Christians have made it our life's, life's endeavor to listen as hard and as carefully as we can to the word of God, believing that Jesus, well, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So ultimately, the Lord has for us not restrictions, but freedom. Nevertheless, often freedom looks like discipline and restriction. If you ever watch a concert pianist playing, they look free, but they're only free in as much as they stay within the discipline of playing the piano and hitting the right notes in the right order. The sexual revolution promised to us, to people, that we would have more sex and freer sex, and that ultimately it would lead to us experiencing greater levels of fulfillment as a society. Has it done so? It depends who you ask, <laughs> I guess you might say. But there are apps like Tinder that have played a part in what's been called the hookup, in the rise of what's called the hookup culture, whereby people engage in casual, one-off, one-night stands and sexual experiences. But the result of that hookup culture isn't producing lasting fulfillment and liberation for people. Miley Cyrus, the pop star, she says this, Having sex, although she doesn't use that word, but it's not appropriate for Sunday morning. Having sex is easy. You can find someone to have sex with in five seconds. We want to find someone we can talk to, though, and be ourselves with, and that's fairly slim pickings. And a university psychiatrist, Miriam Grossman, writes about her encounter with students, and she, she records one student girl saying to her, why did they tell you, why do they tell us how to protect our bodies from herpes and pregnancy, but they don't tell you the damage that it does to your heart, all of this hookup free sex? Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book Confronting Christianity, she actually says, statistically, 
married couples still have more sex than unmarried couples. And while marriage correlates with a range of physical and mental benefits for men and women, for women at least, increasing your sexual partners can lead to, and does often lead to, negative psychological effects. She records a story. She says, two years ago, an agnostic friend who teaches at a world-class university told me that she routinely has female students ask her why they are having all of the sex that was promised to them and yet not experiencing any of the happiness that they were told it would give them. At the start of the pandemic, I remember uh, reflecting on the world turning upside down and writing a blog entitled, There Are Two Kinds of New Normal. There's a new normal that gets announced with fanfare, as happened when the toilet rolls ran out. <laughs> There's a new normal. This is the world post-toilet rolls and pasta. There's a new normal that gets announced, and everybody's aware of it. But then there's another type of new normal that's more like the slow boiling of a pot. You just boil to death one day, or you wake up and realize things are very different than they used to be. How did we get here? We've become accustomed to so many things in this new normal of ours. Mental health disorders that are at uh, all-time high, high abortion rates, high suicide rates, fatherlessness, the corrosion and sexualizing of friendships. Again, that's something that's happened in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, it struck me a couple of years ago, advertisers cannot seem, cannot seem to portray friendship in adverts without also sexualizing it. There was a Citroen advert a couple of years ago, two women grew up together as friends, and the story ends with them getting married. We've sexualized friendship. And so as a result, people are lonelier than ever, with shallower friendships than ever, and thinking the only alternative is sexual experiences, or I need to have sex with my friends. I remember as a teenage boy with a sister, noticing how, uh, how differently girls could relate to one another to boys. My sister and her friends could hold hands, could sit on the sofa with their heads touching, could be in an embrace with each other. I think that's changed already in, since when I was a teenager, that now, for girls to behave in that manner, it's become sexualized in a way that it wasn't 15, 20 years ago. I, I, I remember going to, to Kenya as well in early 2000, and it's quite common there for men to walk down the street holding hands as friends. And so it was, a, it was strange to me as a, as a white Westerner when a guy just starts holding my hand and we're walking down the street. I'm like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> Because I've, I, we have so sexualized friendship that we don't know how to relate to one another in a healthy, intimate, meaningful way. It says of David about Jonathan, he loved Jonathan in the Old Testament as, as his own soul. Friendship, that we don't know friendship like that. We have to sexualize things. In this new normal, we've also seen a rise in cohabitation where now it is more common for couples to live together before being married, uh, where more than two-thirds of couples live together before being married. And the psychologist, Christian psychologist, Glenn Harrison, in a chapter entitled The War on the Weak, he says the trouble is that couples who cohabit are also more likely to separate. And the separation brings the, has the greatest impact being felt by children. In a UK study of more than 10,000 children, it found that of those, of those with both parents present, 6% six, uh, had a significant mental health disorder versus 23% of those in alternative living situations. What's more is that couples who have children before marrying statistically are more likely to separate. And cohabiting couples who don't get married, 66% of them won't be together by their child's 10th birthday. The social trend is this, 48%, half, 
half of children born today will not be found to be living with both natural parents by their 16th birthday. Welcome to the new normal that no one announced. We just woke up and the world was this way. Things or attitudes have changed very rapidly. You don't need me to tell you that, but I think it can be hard to keep up. An example of this is that Nikki Morgan, a Tory MP, in 2013, she voted against the, refer- the same, uh, voted against the redefinition of marriage bill. In 2014, a year later, she said that she was now in favor of same-sex marriage. And then a year after that, in 2015, she said that when she encounters people who hold the view that she held two years ago, she considers it a case of extremism and labels it fundamentally un-British. Now, a friend of mine told me last week that his niece at a local secondary school, not in Seaford, but a local secondary school, was mocked by her classmates for being straight, for being heterosexual and not, not exploring alternative forms of sexuality. She was mocked for it. Another friend of mine who is a Christian and gay and celibate, he says that it will soon in this country be illegal for people in his position to be encouraged by someone else in their celibacy. So he's a Christian, holds to the traditional understanding of sexuality as the Bible lays it out, and as a result of that has decided to to pursue intimate, lifelong friendships that aren't sexual as a means of his fulfillment and satisfying his need for love. If I, as a pastor or just Christian friend, encourage him along the path that he wants, in a few years' time, that will be considered illegal, a form of conversion therapy. And this social change and social pressure has led to some churches, some large mainstream churches in this country, deciding just never to speak about this issue because it's too explosive, while it's led to others, an increasing number of churches, changing their theology despite the fact that the Bible hasn't changed. Nothing's come to light in the last 40 years that made us go, oh, we were wrong. What I observe, though, is that Christians in our churches equally feel confused on this, understandably. According to Christian Mingle, which is, I think, a Christian dating site, according to Christian Mingle survey, 61% of self-identified Christian singles said that they were willing to have casual sex without being in love. 23% said that they would have to be in love, but only 11% said they were willing to wait or said that they were waiting until marriage. What are we to make of it all? (laughs) What I want us to look look at together today in the minutes we've got left in this concept of the real sexual revolution is to hopefully show you that this didn't happen by accident and the things that you believe and our society believes about sex are not self-evident. They have been prescribed and encouraged and written about by social revolutionaries. And there's been a deliberate, a deliberate, not a conspiracy, because if it was a conspiracy, it would be secret, but it's deliberate attempt by many in our society to undermine marriage, destabilize the family. One such cultural revolutionist, a man named Herbert Marcuse, he said that his aim, among others, was to undermine the family unit. And he coined the term, make love, not war because he realized that if we could encourage people to just make love, have sex, then that would undermine the family unit, which would ultimately lead to greater social and cultural change. Another student from the same school of cultural revolution said this, against the power of religion, we employ an equal if not greater power, the power of hormones. So here's the question we're gonna look at together for the remainder of our time. What is sex? 
what is sex? There will be no diagrams, don't worry. <laughs> As we ask the question and look at how do the different revolutions, how do the, differ, how do the different revolutions differ? In Corinth, or I should say this, in the, in the 50s and 60s AD, there was a cultural sexual revolution that transformed the world, and it was a revolution that ultimately led to the liberating and equalizing and validating and honoring of women and children and the family, as well as calling men to exercise restraint and live for something bigger that transformed society. And Paul is the spearhead of that revolution, a single celibate man. In Corinth, the church that we are reading about, they had, on the one hand, too high a view of sex, such that in the next chapter, Paul has to tell them celibacy is possible and, in fact, is, is better. On the one hand, they had too high a view. On the other hand, they had too low a view. You know, the, he quotes one of their slogans, um, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. You know, it's just another appetite. Sex is just another appetite. One writer characterizes how the Corinthians felt about sex by saying this, Sex is just a natural way of satisfying a physical need. You're hungry, so you eat. You want sex, so you visit a prostitute. She is no more than food for a hungry man or a toilet in which a man can relieve himself. What's the problem with that? But actually, that sounds quite contemporary in the way that I hear some people talk about sex. Again, on the one hand, we think that it is sacred, such that violating someone's consent is to violate their dignity and undermine it. But on the other hand, we're told it's just a bodily act and you're just an animal. What's the problem? The way that Paul undermined their thinking and, led, and what led to the revolution was that Paul laid out what sex is by putting it in a much bigger, better story, a much better story than the one the Corinthians had on offer. And we're going to look at sex, as Paul does, by considering creation, worship, and the gospel. Creation, worship, and the gospel. And we'll put Paul's statements alongside more recent uh, Western ones. So let's start with this. Creation. Look at what creation teaches us about sex. Let me just read out what we've, what we've come to accept and imbibe from what recent academics have handed down over the past half century. Sigmund Freud, who is an Austrian psychologist, died in 1939. He said that neurosis or poor mental health is caused by sexual repression not giving into your appetites, and he described a human being as a person is basically a machine with satisfaction as its mission. That's what you're made for. Alfred Kinsey, a biologist who died in 1949, he taught that humanity is just an animal and claimed, therefore, that all orgasms are morally equivalent. Whatever behavior can be found among animals could be, should be normal for us as humans as well, saying that, both homosexuality and bestiality are just, quote, part of the mammalian picture of life. Re reducing the human being to um, anything other than a full picture of who we are is a lie. To say that we're just this is a lie. And I should say this, today's Halloween, and I have a lot of, Christ a lot of Christians have a lot of conscience concerns about Halloween, should we dress up? Should we make light of evil? Because they're concerned about the inroads of evil into their family. Parents, good conscientious parents are very concerned about the lies of Halloween. This is a much more, sorry, this is a much more destructive, undermining evil lie and attempts of the enemy than kids dressing up in fancy dress, I would say. But I very rarely hear anyone say, it's evil, we need to get rid of it. Instead, we just imbibe it from our culture. 
we need to be on our guard, I think. But then I would say that I'm a pastor. <laughs> What's unco- so those sorts of statements, Alfred Kinsey and Freud, those sorts of statements and language that like a human being is just an animal, that's quite common, we hear that a lot. What we don't hear about our creati- created order is what Paul says here. He says, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit. That phrase, the two will become one flesh, is a phrase from the Genesis creation account. And so he is linking our sexed nature and what we do with sex to creation. In the beginning, God created. And as part of that, he made us creatures with the ability to have sex. We reproduce through sexual means. We don't need to. He didn't need to make us in that way. Plants don't. Um, Many other organisms in, in the world don't require sex to procreate. Human beings do. In the beginning... God, we're told in the early chapters of Genesis, separates opposite pairs. He separates light from darkness, day from night, heaven from earth, land from sea in the sequence, and then also, finally and gloriously, he separates male from female. Think about it for a second. We don't have one sun and many moons or one day for every two nights. They are pairs. And the separating and the subsequent coming together in sexual union upon marriage is about not just our creation, but it's about the prophetic promised hope of where human story and the human history is heading. The promise is that heaven and earth will one day be reunited. Heaven where God lives, earth where we live, will one day be reunited. Sex is about creation and about that cosmic future. And it occurs within marriage as a picture against the, per- uh, uh, sorry, it, it happens within marriage as a picture, again, of the permanence of our future hope. Heaven isn't about to have a casual hookup with earth, move in together, and then leave if it doesn't work out, like a consumer partnership. No, God and humanity is going to be united together forever in covenant, sealed by the blood of Christ and at the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife in a state of permanence. At least that's the hope. So it's about creation. That's what Paul says here. Sex is also about worship. Uh, the French philosopher, we'll, we'll listen to the two revolutionaries again, um, modern ones and ancient ones. Um, Michel Foucault, a French philosopher, he said this, sex is worth dying for. It is more important than our soul. His thinking and thinking like others, him, of others like him, have shaped the way that you and I think about sex. The Apostle Paul also links sex to worship, but sex isn't the thing that we worship. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Which, by the way, it's, just, it's worth just acknowledging that verse. We don't grade sins in seriousness 
And actually, you may have noticed when I read out a list of sins that Paul talks about unrighteousness, he lists, you know, uh, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. He lists adultery and greediness together. So we're not grading sins, but Paul does say when you sin sexually, you do violate and sin against yourself. So it is of a slightly different order in that regard. Um, He then says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? It's about worship. Last week we talked about the concept of sacred space. That a temple is where God lives. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here Paul takes it one step further. He says it's not just about the gathered church as a temple, but about you, each individual Christian as well. Since you have the holy presence of God residing in you. So we're not only his image bearers on earth, his representatives, we're also the meeting place on earth between God's spirit and the world. And actually, biblically, there's a link between the number of gods you worship and the number of sexual partners you have. That's why the Ten Commandments begins with, have no other gods before me, and then it's, it's pairing a few commandments later is, uh, later is, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, you shall worship no other gods beside me, and you shall have only one husband or wife. And when Israel violates one command, they often, in the Old Testament, they often violate the other as well. And actually, when God describes their idolatry, worshipping other gods, he relates it to adultery. In Judges 2, verse 17, he says, My people have whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Sex is about worship. Or as one author puts it like this, Our sexuality reflects our worship. Faithfulness with one reflects faithfulness in the other. Lastly, sex is also about the gospel. It's about salvation. Western writers have said this about sex. Margaret Sanger, who is the American activist and founder of Planned Planned Parenthood and died in 1966, she said, through sex, mankind may attain the great spiritual illumination which will transform the world, which will light up the only path to an earthly paradise. Wilhelm Reich, he said that the orgasm is man's only salvation leading leading to a kingdom of heaven on earth. The Apostle Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. If you put your faith in Jesus and have been baptized in his name, then guess what? You've given up the rights to your body. You've given up the rights to who you sleep with and how many people you sleep with. You're his now. He's purchased you. With his son's blood, he redeemed you. That is to say, he bought you out of slavery as one would buy a slave in the ancient world from the slave market. He's redeemed you. Jesus says if anyone sins, they're a slave to sin. Sin enslaves. He has come to set you free. To be a Christian is to be Christ's. That's the gospel. That's what sex is a picture of. He's bought you. You're now his. Now honor God with your body. And he has committed himself to you, and our marriage ceremonies reflect this. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, you give to me. Well, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I should have written it down. <laughs> and all that I have, I share with you. When you become a Christian, he gets your sin and shame and failures and past and present and future mistakes, and we get his spirit, we get his righteousness, we get his life, and eventually we get to go be with him. 
And that's a picture of the gospel. Salvation isn't in sexual expression and experience. Salvation is found in Jesus. And in learning to obey him and honor him with our bodies, we find freedom. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, people who practice or people who are sexually immoral by the way that word for that word sexually immoral is the greek word porneia from which we get the word pornography it means in the greek context it means to treat another human being as an object but paul's also using it with the backdrop of the leviticus law code in the old testament so sexual immorality porneia is everything that god says about sex in the old testament and treating another human being as an object says neither the sexually immoral um nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers who inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the crescendo. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were washed is a picture of their baptism. You have been cleansed by Christ. You've been made new. And now we're waiting for that final eventual hope. The gay celibate Christian, Wesley Hill, he, he has a beautiful book entitled Washed and Waiting. That Christians are the washed. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been cleansed. We've all screwed up sexually. We're living in a fallen world. We've all been greedy. We've all been idolaters. We've all done things that we feel ashamed of. But the Christian is one who can say, I've been washed. I've been justified. And now I wait for that day that I will be united with him in body and in spirit. And that's the story, that's the revolution that the Apostle Paul uses to offset the, the culture of Corinth and to speak against the sexual revolution or devolution of our day. It's the Christian rebellion. Now, the scriptures have a high view of human sexuality, one that is far bigger, far more cosmic, far more other-centered and self-denying than either the entitlement or the consumerism or the salvation attitude on offer in our current age. And in case you didn't spot it, I love pointing this sort of thing out, in case you didn't spot it, our salvation, again, is multi-personal, just as it is multi-dimensional. We belong to God the Father. We have God the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we've been united with God the Son. Paul is thoroughly Trinitarian in the way that he thinks about God. You see, ultimate reality is this interpersonal God of heaven revealed in Christ and known through the Spirit. He is our husband. He is our soul's keeper. He is our delight. He is a jealous God who wants all of you, not content with leaving anything behind or leaving you as you are. See, this is the real revolution of human dignity. This is the undermining of the world's way of worshipping and living that you see Christianity uh, unleashing on the world. It insists that Christ is Lord, that he is to be obeyed and trusted and followed. It declares that he, like a husband coming for a wife, is coming for his people and that he loves us. And he isn't commitment phobic. He laid his life down. He didn't just say, move in, we'll see how it goes, and if I don't like you, you'll leave. He committed himself to me, to you. He laid his life down. And he invites us to follow him and to know his undying love and plan for his people. This story is a story based not on self-expression and on self-love, 
or on the worship of sex, but on the celebration of sexual or on the celebration of sexual expression and liberation. This is a story based on the gospel of Jesus. That message that brings dignity to all, freedom to women, meaning to men, protection and value to children, and elevates us as a species above our mere biology, placing us in something much bigger, something beyond us, the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there is forgiveness for failures. There is salvation for sinners. And there is a welcome to the rejected. Christ meets us as we are, warts and all. And then he says, come follow me and I'll set you free. Let's pray.